just start with a word of prayer here and then we'll get going with our service. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we can gather together a wide range of believers in terms of our backgrounds and our ages, even our personalities. Thank you that you've brought us all together as one big family in Christ. Pray that we would have that mentality that we are together, we're united, we're striving together for the same cause, that we would keep the mission front and center that we'd be clear about what that mission is and not get distracted by secondary things. Pray that we would even just have compassion and kindness and love and a mentality about building up and strengthening one another and that we'd have forgiveness in our hearts and ability to let go of things and to forgive people for things that they do to wrong us and that we would be stronger together than we could be apart as you design. Pray that we'd be looking to you and enjoying you and letting you work in our hearts and our thinking so that you could produce that kind of mindset in us and actions that would be in accord with that way of thinking. Pray that you'd undertake to give me wisdom and even the youth leader, whoever's teaching tonight, and the Truth for Youth teachers, that they'd have wisdom tonight to teach your word and communicate your truth accurately and clearly. Pray that you'd give us safety as there's sometimes some running around in games that get played. Pray that you'd give safety with that. Pray that you'd give us hearts that want to be a reflection of you in our lives, that we would have a desire to have boldness and have an impact for you in the lives of the people that you put us into contact with. Pray that we would be willing vessels that you could work through as you shine your light into other people's lives through us as a channel that is willing to be used. Pray that you just give us a heart that has a deep concern about your word and a desire to know you. Pray that we would see the value in getting to know you more and reading your word and investing time in your word. Pray that we would just even be encouraged by these truths we're going to look at in the book of Psalms tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the title of tonight's message is The Fountain of Life, The Fountain of Life. From a worldly perspective, the human experience entails a continual search for various things. And as I was thinking about what is the human experience and and what really goes into that, and, and I think the word search, this continual search, is really what it amounts to in terms of, again, from a human's perspective, from a worldly perspective, a continual search, but a continual search for what? And the answers are varied, but you have purpose would be one of them that would come to mind, a continual search for purpose. For many, you could describe it with the word satisfaction, a continual search for satisfaction or contentment or enjoyment or even vitality the feeling of being alive, that the human experience from, again, a worldly perspective, from a temporal-minded perspective, that it's focused on the continual search for those things, purpose, satisfaction, contentment, enjoyment, and vitality. And perhaps as I was saying that, something else popped into your mind that could be added to that list. And you think about the world's way of thinking, the world's perspective, but then you think about the people that are in the world, which, of course, we're part of that, but from a human, a natural way of thinking, those that do not know the Lord, they seek all of those things by looking to self and others and the world around them. So the world, the people in the world that make up the world as we're thinking about those that are not identified as being in Christ, but just being in the world and still in Adam, 
those that represent that, they're seeking all of those kinds of things. But they're seeking them by looking in the wrong places and the three most common places they're looking at is in the world itself, within themselves, and in other people, looking at other people for those things, trying to find purpose in self, purpose in somebody else, purpose in something of the world, or pick the word satisfaction, trying to find satisfaction in themselves, satisfaction in other people, or satisfaction in the world. Or pick another one, contentment, trying to find contentment by an internal focus or a focus on people or a focus on circumstances or the world around them. And they're blinded to the truth they're without hope in the world. They desperately pursue any means possible to satisfy the longing of their souls, and they cling to the life that they see fading away. If you're describing the mentality of the natural man, the mentality of the natural worldly driven man is to be blinded to truth without hope, desperately pursuing any means to satisfy the longing of his or her soul or, and clinging to life. And it's a life that they see, just like you and I should see, that it's fading quickly away. It's a temporal thing. And as you think about that person that's without Christ and without hope in the world, that natural-minded individual, the older they get, the more their own mortality confronts them. They pursue any means possible to extend life or retain youth. And so you think about some of that. Watch it in the people that you know. You see it in yourself hopefully with a secondary perspective where it's something that you're doing with some, a little bit of God, you know, God, bodily exercise profits, a little that kind of mentality where you're seeking to maintain health so that you could be more useful in this ministry or that ministry or serving the Lord in this capacity or that capacity. But others who don't know the Lord, you see them as they age really looking for that fountain of youth, that fountain of life, a way to extend life or cling to life. And, and it's, it takes many different forms. They start seeking out a different diet, a different routine, a different doctor, a different internet source that can re help them get back some of that youthfulness. That's the definition of what is driving a midlife crisis. When you think about that, as a person gets to be middle-aged, they start to see there's more life behind them than life in front of them, and they start to do things that are all representative of this desire to cling to life, cling to youthfulness, cling to vitality. And the efforts are ultimately futile, and every individual ultimately or eventually passes into eternity. There's nothing that can be done to stop that clock. It has a fixed ending. And the tragedy and the irony of it all is that everything they were seeking in terms of satisfaction, purpose, contentment, enjoyment, vitality, everything they were seeking, it was available in the creator God they ignorantly or defiantly excluded, rejected, and rebelled against in their lives. The very things that man, the natural man apart from Christ is after and is missing and knows is missing from their life, those things are all found in a right relationship with the creator God, the one true God of the Bible. And it's sad. There's, again, tragedy and irony in that. And it's equally sad that there are believers who understand these truths that our source for finding purpose, our source of satisfaction, contentment, enjoyment, and vitality, that source is Jesus Christ. That source is God himself. That the believer, what's equally sad is that believers could understood, understand that or have understood that at some point in the past, and yet 
refuse to appropriate it in the present. Where in the present, we know something's true, but we're searching for those same things that the lost are searching for, the one who is with hope, without hope and without God in the world, that person is searching for in all of the wrong places, and we know better. And it's so sad when the believer seeks to find the fountain of life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, find that in things apart from God himself. So all a buildup to Psalm 36 here where we have the psalmist remind us that God is the source of those things. That's where our focus needs to be. God is the source of everything that the man or woman of faith needs, including, including life itself. God is, in fact, the fountain of life. That's where we'll find life. That phrase comes from the psalm. Turn there if you haven't already. And we'll dig into this psalm this evening, Psalm 36. Now, we have 12 verses here in this psalm. It's not overly long. Lord willing, maybe we'll even get through it quicker than normal here tonight. But you think about this psalm, and there's really, as I break it down, three main parts. You might break it down differently, perhaps, and someone else would as well. But for the sake of, of my understanding of it, what jumped out at me is really three things. First part is, there's a description here of man's natural character. Because a contrast is going to be made between man's natural way of thinking, man's natural character, and God's character. God's perfect perfectness. So we have the brokenness of man contrasted with the sinfulness of man contrasted with what? The righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the character of God. And so we start though with man's natural character verses one through four. Let's read them together. And here we have an oracle within my heart. This is psalmist speaking concerning what? The transgression of the wicked. He's going to speak about what he describes or labels here as a description of the wicked. Now, how does he describe him? So the psalm begins by painting this vivid reminder of the human condition. So it's picking up here at the back half of verse one. There is no fear of God before his eyes, talking about the one that's without God, the, natu- the natural-minded individual. Verse two, he, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself up in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. So you think of that description of the natural man, man's natural character. There is no inherent good in unregenerate mankind. There is no inherent good in a man who is walking with a mentality apart from God himself, apart from faith. Now, can the, the spiritually minded man, can the one who is, who is regenerated and is a part of God's family, is a son of God, can that person fall back into a way of thinking and a way of behaving and living that is synonymous with what he once was before he was saved? And the answer is yes. So you'll see here in a moment that this description of the one who is operating in this sphere this natural sphere could be true of the unregenerate man or the regenerate man who is living life apart from God. And that's why there's no room for pride in the part of the believer because these things could be true and at times are true of even men and women of faith. They ought not be true, but they sometimes are. And you think about how there's nothing inherently good in the flesh, the the natural man. There's nothing inherently good in that. You would naturally probably think of Romans chapter 3. Let's turn there just 
tonight. Sometimes we, we think, wow, we know this so well, we're not going to spend any time in it. Let's turn to Romans 3, and we'll just look at a few of these descriptions that are made of the natural man. These are also, again, true of the carnal believer, the believer living apart from God, but the focus here is on how all stand guilty before God. So we pick up in verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles is what you're talking about there, that they are what? All under sin. There's, they've all fallen short. So as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. This is, again, our standing in terms of our birth in Adam being identified with a race of sinners and then being sinners by choice. So there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. This one gets me. There is none who seeks after God. See, sometimes people have this perspective that God owes them in eternity in heaven because they've been so desperately seeking God. There's no way. There, it says here that there's none who is seeking after God in the natural mindset. They have all, how many all, turned aside? They have together, meaning all of them, become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And it goes on to describe it more than that. You get to, of course, some of these Verses in the 20s, 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, meaning mankind could not make himself righteous by the keeping of the law. That's been the point that Paul is working toward when he even says that it's not by works of righteousness that we are saved. It's according to God's mercy that we can be reconciled to God. He says that in verse 5 of chapter 4 where he says, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. But pick up again here. There is none righteous. The righteousness of God apart from the laws revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning it was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, but how do we obtain the imputed righteousness of God? It has to be credited to our account on the basis of faith apart from works due to the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So for, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who what? How do you access the righteousness of Christ that can be applied to the sinful account of a sinner like you and I? Well, through believing. Believing in who? Jesus Christ. Believing what about him? That he was the savior of the world. That he died, was buried, and rose again for sinners like you and I. For there is no difference than what does he say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then the kind of a conclusion here, being justified freely. Remember, to be, for, to be free, it has to be freely given and freely received. Justified meaning to be judicially declared to be in a right standing with God. In the, on the basis of what? That previously discussed belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ, how his righteousness could be credited to our account. So being justified freely by his grace, meaning it was undeserved, meaning heaven cannot be a reward for good people. Heaven has to be a gift that is given to sinners who are redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. We could keep going, but in any event, this sounds very similar as we're talking about this description here in Psalm 36 of where man stands by nature. How, how man would be properly described by nature. 
See, there could never be any redemption on the basis of human, human merit or righteousness because this is a summary of man's natural character. David, it's, he summarizes man's natural disposition very vividly and accurately here. And there's a f- bunch of different phrases, at least, at least six of them, I believe. Yeah, six of them we're going to look at. First one is, there is no fear of God before his eyes. This is just one description of the man living life or operating in rejection and rebellion against God. Now, again, it could refer to an unregenerate man, could refer to regenerate man. Uh, in this context, you'll see in a second, it could, be, it could be either one. But there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, why is there no, when we talk about fear of the Lord, we're talking about a reverential respect and awe. I think awe is a better description of what we're talking about when we're thinking about the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is to be in awe of God. Having that awe, the proper recognition of who he is, gives us a reverence for him, a respect for God. We're not talking about fear as in the sense of, I'm afraid of snakes or I'm afraid of the dark. We have a sense of, wow, I'm blown away by the majesty of God, and that causes me to have a reverential response, a respectful response to him. But why is there no reverence or respect for God? There is no fear of God before his eyes. Well, it says why. The reason is this, for this person, this individual at that point in time anyway, flatters himself in his own eyes, and he has this belief that his iniquity is somehow hidden from God, that it cannot be found out and hated. There's this perspective almost that he's getting away with it. But he flatters himself in his own eyes. What a, what a nice description there. What a vivid description. You see, man's greatest problem is pride. Man's greatest problem is pride. Man's greatest problem is pride. It's not a lack of self-esteem. The world would have you believe that man's greatest problem is that he needs to love himself a little bit more. And the truth of the matter is that man's biggest problem is that he is too in love with himself. He is too infatuated with himself. He is too full of pride. And this is just a, when you say he flatters himself, what, when you are Think about what you're really doing as an unbeliever when you say, I can go this alone. I don't need God's one and only plan of rescue. I don't need it. Even though God says that this is the right, that this is an accurate evaluation of me, that I'm dead in trespasses and sins, that I'm lost, I'm sold under sin, that I am subject to his wrath, even though that God says that's true, and I'm going to say I know better than God. There's a lot of pride in that. How about God says, this is the only way man can be rescued, and I say, I don't need that, I can rescue myself, or I can come up with some alternative means of being rescued besides what God says is true. An awful lot of pride in that. How about for the one who knows the Lord, though, who's a child of God, we'll assume for the sake of our discussion here tonight that that's each and every one of you. So if we sit here here tonight as a gathering, a midweek gathering of a local Bible church, men and women of faith, the question is, how much pride does it take to go through the day saying, I know you say that, without me I can do nothing. I know that you say that, when I'm leaning on my own understanding, it's going to end in a train wreck. I know you say that, God, but I don't believe that. I don't accept that. I think that my way is better than your way, and my thoughts are in fact higher than your thoughts. I think you're missing something, God. I seek to educate you about what you lack in understanding, God. And in fact, What you've written in your word cannot be relied upon. You need my insight and my wisdom to supplement that. And my insight and my wisdom concludes, I can go through life on my own. 
I can depend on myself for success in the spiritual realm. I don't need God the way he says he's needed. Now, we don't say that, do we? I guarantee none of us say it like that. But isn't it true that practically where the rubber meets the road with many different decisions throughout the day, we are effectively saying, I'm not going to trust you with that because what are we really saying? I either don't care what you think, God, I don't care about your truth, or I don't believe it in this moment, and I think I know something better than you. I'm not going to trust you. There's a lot of arrogance and pride in doing that, but that's naturally what we're doing when we're rebelling against God. What do you think we're doing when you're rejecting God, refusing to include him in your life, and you're going against what he says is his plan and purpose for your life? What effectively are you doing? You're effectively saying, God, I don't have any sense of respect for you. I don't have any awe for you. I don't trust you, at least not in those moments. So we continue. The next phrase is, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. So there's no fear of God before his eyes, one description. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. As Again, we're talking about somebody operating in the natural realm. Made me think of Matthew chapter 15, verse, verse 11, as we talk about the words that come out of your mouth. Jesus said, now what goes into the mouth, not what goes into the mouth, defiles a man. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. We talk, James talks about this at length too, as you're talking about the defilement that comes out of the mouth of man. Think about the things that you say when you're not walking by faith when you're not being led and directed by the Spirit. Think about the words that come out of your mouth when things aren't going the way that you wanted them to and your gaze shifts from the Savior to your circumstances. Think about the things that you regularly say. I'm not immune from it. I'm thankful sometimes you guys aren't around here. I was out in the woods the other night cutting with a chainsaw in the dark had the headlamp on. But sometimes all it takes, I am, this is not made up. I am literally listening to the word of God being read to me from my phone to these Bluetooth earmuffs I have on. So I am listening to the word of God as I'm cutting these trees. And I can go in a split second from enjoying what I'm hearing from God's word to cursing the branch that got hung up on the other branch. It's unbelievable sometimes how fickle we are, how quick we are to shift gears. So if you're looking to me for some sort of an example of getting it right, I'm not the right guy for that. But I'm a work in progress. I, I'm seeking to avoid that and to recognize that the extra 12 seconds it took me to pull this branch loose as it was stabbing me in the throat and scraping my face and these kinds of things, it's not the end of the world. These aren't things that I need to get triggered by, but the truth is everybody has their things. They have their things, and if you lack patience or you're quick to, quick to uh, be frustrated, maybe you would, this what I'm saying would resonate with you, and you can imagine a situation where you were just working on something, everything was going fine, uh, you're enjoying the Lord, maybe even praying, maybe even singing a song that you had in your heart from Christian radio that's going on in the background, and 
car falls off the jack, the lug nut gets stuck, you drop the tool down into the thing and you can't even get it out of there. Whatever it is, right? You're painting the wall and you paint right into the trim that you've been trying to avoid. You're trying to do this, that, or the other thing, right? You're sewing something up, you're, name it. And next thing you know, where's your mind at? And when your mind goes, what comes with it? Well, in the case of me, my mouth, the words of my mouth. Very convicting. Again, these could describe a person who never knew the Lord or a person who's operating in the natural realm, even though they should know better. Now, the third one is, he has ceased, this kind of person operating in the natural realm, has ceased to act wisely and good, do good. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. And this is why I believe that this could, even in David's instance here, even in the context that David could be referring to, men of faith that have turned against him, that are actually harboring ill will toward him and are trying to harm him because what does he say here? This individual has ceased to act wisely and do good, inferring what? That they had previously been acting wisely and doing good. So Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? And then he says this, there is more hope for a fool than for him. The one who instead of finding their wisdom in God's truth and being led and directed by God ends up trying to find wisdom in himself, leaning on his own understanding. The proverb says there is more hope in a fool than for that person who sees wisdom in his own eyes. Now, again, this is like the representative of a believer who is currently astray, not trusting the Lord, operating in the natural realm. And remember that much of the opposition that David faced was internal within his own kingdom and within his own home. And so as he's talking about some of these people that are, again, described as operating in the natural realm, it could be either. Now, what's the next one? This individual, another description of the one operating in the natural realm, plots trouble while on his bed. Plots trouble while, while on his bed. The idea, they're consumed day and night with things that are opposed to God. It's not necessarily direct rebellion, but it's, it's things that are not the things that God wants you to be focused on. See, you can plot trouble while in your bed directly in the sense of you're actively thinking about some evil scheme, but you can also, in a sense, plot trouble day and night, be in opposition to God by just spending all your time obsessing and thinking about things that are not God's priorities even, let alone not his will for your life. We're not even, you wouldn't even have to be talking about overt sin. You could just be talking about, I just lay there at night and I dream about the things of this world, the cares of this world. Now, is it ever wrong to have a concern for the everyday minutia of life that we have to deal with and go through? No, I'm not saying that's wrong. Is it, does it mean you're carnal because you're laying in bed and there's concerns that cross your mind? No, I'm talking about somebody who night and day is obsessing on the thinking, the things of this world that are temporary and passing away instead of the things that are eternal. What's the next description? He sets himself in a way that is not good. So he, seek to, he ceased to act wisely and do good, and now he sets himself in a way that is not good. See, that's naturally what happens is our mentality, our thinking is affected, is that we go from having now the wrong thinking to now having the wrong what? The wrong behavior. So Proverbs 14, 12 says this about the way that is not good. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Why? Because in the context, it excludes God from it. Good reminders. Are all of these things 
possible? Are all of these things trials or things that could face the Christian? And the truth is, yes. These are all things that you could be dealing with. Now, the sixth one, the last one here is that he does not reject evil. So if you're not walking in the way that is not good naturally, you're not in a position to discern right from wrong anymore, good from evil anymore, you're not going to reject evil while at the same time you're not walking in that way. You're setting yourself in a way that's not good. It's just a natural progression that occurs as our thinking gets all out of whack. True for believers, always true for the lost. This is the only option for them. Romans 12, 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. But what is the believer's mentality to be? How does that verse continue? It says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. You see, he does not abhor evil. In the King James Version, in others, he does not reject evil is what, what that means. So there's the description of the one that's operating in the natural realm. That's the natural character of man. But what's the contrast? Now, then the, contract is, the contrast is with the character of God. God is the source of hope for somebody who otherwise would always default to this because the believer, the spiritually minded individual has victory, has the opportunity to have victory by allowing God's character to become a reflection of his present way of living, his present way of thinking. And he's think about the context that we're in here in the New Testament where we're actually indwelled by, sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're convicted by, we're taught by the Spirit of God. We have even an additional resource in that sense of God in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, the, the Spirit of God himself, the Spirit of Jesus Christ operating and living inside of us as a source of hope to, off, to overcome, to give victory over the natural default, the natural characteristic, the natural way of thinking in the natural Realm. So let's read verses 5 through 7a as we look at the character of God. Now 5 starts with, Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are, great, are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Now, the context of that is David talking about the depravity of man naturally. The depravity of man apart from God. Man would be hopeless apart from God. And then he starts to talk about how God is, instead of holding that against man, providing no way of success, no way of rescue, God is all of those things. And let's break them down a little bit. The first one is hope for the hopeless. And that's certainly a description of the one who is characterized in verse 1 through 4 as the natural realm, the natural-minded man, the way we would naturally be. There's no fear of God in his eyes. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. That individual seems like they'd be in a position of not being able to be reconciled to God. That person seems like that'd be a hopeless condition as far away from God as possible. But yet, though that is a description like we saw in Romans 3 of all men, there is a way for man to enjoy a relationship with God and it starts with a hope that is found as a, on the basis of God's love for mankind. Now you see that in two places here. One, he says, your steadfast love, now the word mercy there is translated by most translations, steadfast love, your steadfast love O Lord, is in the heavens. Then go to seven, the beginning of seven. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. 
Now he's saying this immediately on the heels of this description of the one who is contrary to God, rebelled against God in opposition to God. God is still compassionate. He has steadfast love for people. He makes a way where there is no way. Then you look at the next statement. God's, so we have God's love on, on display. Then we have God's faithfulness is the focus here. Not man's, God's faithfulness. The next part of it says in the back half of verse five, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. So your steadfast love is higher than the heavens or reaches to the heavens, but now your righteousness, or your, sorry, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Now, one of the things about theology as you're thinking about studying theology, you're wanting to study the word of God, and a lot of times there's a lot of different opinions out there. I would suggest that this is something that can always keep you on a path that is straight so that you can cut straight the words of Scripture. Ask yourself, is this interpretation of Scripture, is it putting the focus on man or is it putting the focus on God? Any interpretation that makes man the focus is not the right interpretation. The truth is that the focus of the Bible is on the story of God and revealing God to man, demonstrating God's grace for man, God's love for man, and God's plan of rescue and redemption for those that he cared so much about. And so the storyline of the Bible from beginning to end is that man trying to operate independently from God is a failure, a flop and a failure, that there is no spiritual success to be found in pursuing a right relationship with God apart from God's intervention in what God says is the only way that he can be approached. Contrasted with what? That man who is operating in dependence on God can thrive spiritually because he learns to lean not on himself and not trust himself, but to trust God and to rely and depend on God to do for him what he could never do for himself. So that's why when we start even looking at God as a source of hope for the one that in the natural realm had no hope, it puts the focus on God, his love. Second thing here, his faithfulness, not man's. So many different traditions will do an awful lot of preaching about how it's your faithfulness that is the thing that secures God's response to you. And the truth from God's word is that though we are unfaithful, God remains faithful still because he cannot deny himself. It's God's faithfulness that is the central focus of the storyline of the Bible. Now move on to the next one. It says this, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Same thing. What's the focus on? Man making himself right? No, the focus is on God being the source of righteousness. It's God's righteousness that is in view here, not man's. Righteousness is sourced in God. It's not sourced in man. Keep going. Understanding and wisdom originates with God, not man. Your judgments are like the great deep. That's a reference to God's wisdom, God's understanding, God's determinations of things. They're like the great deep, meaning your thoughts are not my thoughts, your ways are not my ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts and my thoughts and your ways and my ways. Who says that? Seth, saith the Lord. And so as you're thinking about the great depth of the judgments of God, the focus again of wisdom and understanding is on God. It originates with God. It's not man kind in the spotlight. Now you come to the last one here at the last part of verse 6. 
Rescue and preservation depend on God's intervention. Man cannot save himself. He says this, man and beast you save, O Lord. Save from what? The natural condition that they found themselves in. The despair that man would have apart from the intervention of God on his behalf. The hopelessness that man was facing. So we have a number of verses here bringing out different characteristics that are focusing on a contrast between God and how he undertakes and what his character is life and how his character and his provision is ultimately the thing that can set man in a place where he could enjoy God and he could enjoy a right standing with God. So we pick up this last section. What's man's only logical or rational response to this description of God's character and God's provision for man? Well, David comes right into it now. And this is the last of this psalm is a section that's bringing out now. What kind of a response should you have to considering the hopelessness of man, then considering the goodness of God, the perfectness of God is maybe a way to see verses 5 through 7. God is perfect. Man is, is hopeless due to his iniquity and his sin and his, his brokenness. God is though perfect and God is loving. God is faithful. God is righteous. God is, has understanding and judgment. And God is the one who can preserve. Now, what's our response? What would a rational response be? How precious is your loving kindness, O God? Now, what's the response? Therefore... Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. So you see that word therefore. It should be understood as something along the lines of in light, in light of or in recognition of what was just said, about the hope that can come from considering the perfectness of God or the character of God in contrast to the hopeless character of man, what would the response be? So there's the, the expected logical and reasonable response is then described with these following phrases. Now, look at 7b where he says, the children of men, therefore, so in light of what was just said, the children of men put their trust in themselves. No. Man's ability to provide for himself is characterized by the natural realm, what he was apart from God. So no, it says, therefore, the children of man put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Now, ask yourself what that looks like. What does that look like to put your trust under the shadow of your, capital Y, of God's wings? The idea there is of a little duckling or a little bird that comes in under the arms, under the wings, under the protection, under the shelter, under the provision of the parent. Uh, in this case, the Heavenly Father. What's the key component in this? Well, it's motivated by God's love, but the key component is trust. Therefore, the children of men put their trust in what? The provision, protection, the direction that God can provide. But that involves trusting 
God, that's what that looks like, is being convinced and persuaded that God can be relied upon and can be trusted in the storms and the trials and the circumstances and the details of life. Now, what doesn't it involve? It doesn't involve the parent The parent duck is quacking and saying, get over here, there's danger over there. Come close to mom, come close to dad, get under my wings, I'll protect you. It doesn't involve running out into the street into traffic. It doesn't doesn't involve a hopeless duckling saying, I got this, I don't need your help. I don't need your assistance, I don't need your direction. You've seen a few of those splattered on the road. That doesn't work. It involves resting Trusting involves resting. It it involves drawing near to the Father in a posture of restfulness, dependence. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to lean into you, Father, so that you can undertake and provide for what I really need. So then ask yourself here tonight, are you really trusting the Lord with the details of your life? The answer, some of them, Probably. All of them? Probably not, because you're a work in progress, just like I am. Could you be trusting him more? Yes. Could your faith be growing? Yes. Can you ever get to a place where you say, I don't need the word of God, I don't need growth, I don't need to be taught, I don't need to fellowship with other believers, I don't need the spirit of God, I don't need his work in my life? No. If the Apostle Paul says, I haven't arrived, I haven't attained, I haven't achieved, I haven't got it all figured out, certainly you and I don't. But we have to be reminded of that. Because the natural default is to think that we're trusting God more than than we really are. I'll tell you this, I need to be reminded of this. You can't be trusting the Lord and striving in your own strength at the same time. It's one or the other. And we think somehow we can do both. Why are you striving? Why are you fighting? Why are you resisting? And and somehow the flesh is so deceitful that it can still it can deceive us to believe that while we're resisting, quenching, fighting, we're we're going our own way, that while we're striving to figure this out on our on our own, the flesh can actually convince us that we're spiritually minded and that we're trusting the Lord. We're deceived. We're deceived when that's happening. Now, what's another description here? Verse 8. The children of men, now therefore, in response, in, re- in light of what we just saw about the character of God, the only reasonable or rational response is they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, God's house, and God, you, God, give them drink from the river of your pleasures. And that word pleasures means delight or joy. You give them Drink from the rivers of your delight or joy. What were some of those things man is desperately cer- ser- searching for? Satisfaction, contentment, purpose, joy, prosperity, vitality, enjoy- you know, enjoyment we talked about. What does this say? They are abundantly satisfied who are getting that fullness from the Lord's house. What is that synonymous with? Closeness, fellowship, proximity to Him. So as that's true, it says that they are abundantly satisfied and filled with joy, drinking from the rivers of your joy or delight. So you see that phrase, 
that word for, not phrase, that word for, for. Because is sort of the idea there. For with you is the fountain of life. Why are they abundantly satisfied and filled with joy? And who are, the, who are they? Those who are trusting the Lord from the second part of verse 7. So there's those who are putting their trust in the Lord. The result of trusting the Lord is that they're abundantly satisfied and filled with God's joy. And, and then verse 9, and then for with you is the fountain of life. The reason that they're filled with joy and they're abundantly satisfied is that God is the source of life and light, we see in verse 9. God is the source of light and life. For with you is the fountain of life, title of our message, the fountain of life. It's not the fountain of youth, but it's the fountain of life. It can only be found with him. And in your light, we see light. See, Jesus even says, I am the light of the world. I have come that they might have life, Jesus said. God is the source of life and light. You can't find it anywhere else. So, now then David ends the psalm. He says, this is why. This is why the person is satisfied. If you're searching for satisfaction, it can be found in the Lord. It can be found in his house. It can be found under the shadow of his rings, his wings. It can be found from drinking, tasting and seeing that he's good by drinking of the river of his delight. So then he ends by saying he's going to entreat the Lord to continue to deal with him in grace. That's a paraphrase. Continue to deal with me graciously, God. I see that this is what you're doing. I see that man naturally doesn't deserve this. This is man's natural character. But I see that there's hope in God's character and in God's provision. I see that the only response, therefore, the only response is to appropriate that by faith in this moment that I'm facing in my life right now, by getting under the shadow of your wing, drawing near to your house, drawing near to you, uh, drinking from the, your river of, rivers of delight. And so then, as I see your gracious disposition toward me, your gracious provision for me, how does the end? Keep dealing with me in grace. Do you ever pray that? God, keep dealing with me in grace. Does God deserve, does he owe you his grace? Does he have to? Only because he said, I guess, that he will, where that his grace will always be greater. But as you think about this, the way David sees this with the revelation that he has at this point in time, this is how he ends. Continue your loving kindness to those who know you. Insert the word, continue your righteousness to the upright in heart, seeing that my righteousness comes from God again. It's your righteousness that is, is the way that I can be made right. Your loving kindness is what is the thing that is treating me in grace and that can give me a direction in my life and provision for the details and the needs of my life. So if you're going to sort of paraphrase the last two verses then, continue to protect me against the op opposition. So three continues really. Continue your loving kindness, continue your righteousness, continue to protect me against the opposition. And that's what he means by don't let the proud trample me underfoot or the wicked push me around. That's, that's how that would be paraphrased there, verse 11. Do not let the proud trample me, so let not the foot of, the pri of pride come against me. And or the wicked push me around where you see with the wicked drive me away. Remember, don't get tripped up by your own pride either, but in this context, he's talking about the pride of others. And then he ends by saying, there is nothing but destruction and misery ahead for those who reject God. That's what verse 12 is saying. There's no future, there's no hope for the one who stays in that natural realm that's described in verses one through four and doesn't appropriate 
by grace, the loving provision of God to give him access to light and life. The one who doesn't do that is still facing this kind of a disposition. There is nothing but destruction and misery ahead for those who reject God. There, the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. Now, that's true of the one who's trying to, as a man or woman of faith, operate independently from God. That's true of the one who has never accepted God's provision to deal with their sinfulness in terms of justification or the penalty that was owed for their sinfulness. So both are true. But there's nothing but destruction and misery ahead for those who reject God. True in our lives, true in the lives of the lost. So we have the fountain of life. Everything man craves, seeks, and needs is found in the Lord. That's what I hope the takeaway is for you. Everything that man craves, seeks, and needs is found in the Lord. God is everything that man is not. God alone is the source of life and light. If you're looking for that abundant satisfaction, that pleasure of delight, to be that enjoyment that you're seeking in life, it can only be found in Him because He is the source of life itself. He is the source of light. Now you ask, am I going to be reasonable or unreasonable, logical or illogical? Am I going to respond in the only manner that makes sense? Am I going to respond in the only manner that makes sense, which is what? It's therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Is that going to be true of you or not? That is where satisfaction and joy are found. The question is, will you appropriate it? Will you do that? Will you respond in that way? So, relatively short psalm. I see I didn't go much shorter, but let's pray. And then we'll take some prayer requests. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the re- reminder that we can't find life apart from you. We can't find light apart from you providing it. That trusting you is always the response that is called for by your word, regardless of which section we're studying. Pray that we would see that man cannot succeed apart from you. Pray that we would operate with a posture of complete dependence on you as we would have an appreciation of your grace and your love and your in your tender compassion toward us, pray that we wouldn't try to live life apart from you, but that we would rest, we would depend, we would trust in ways that we haven't yet. Help our faith to grow, help our understanding to grow, help us to experience you in a real and practical way. Pray that we wouldn't just know truth, but that we would apply that truth to our lives, again, in dependence on you and through the power of your spirit. Thank you for this time we could spend together in Jesus' name.